stop there. Stop what you're doing. I want to make sure that if you haven't listened to part one of this two-part episode series, go back and listen to that one as, as this part Part two is a continuation of that conversation. So you're going to be a little bit lost if you don't listen to that first part. So if you haven't listened, go back. If you are back, welcome. I'm excited to do this and finish off this powerful conversation with Michael Thomas. You are listening to Her Dinero Matters, the podcast helping Latinas have increased confidence and control over their finances. My name is Jen Hempel, and as an accredited financial counselor, my mission is to help you be more confident and simplify your finances so you can save more, get out of debt quicker, and build your wealth. I'm excited to have you back for part two of this two-part series. So let's not delay and let's continue with this fabulous conversation with Michael Thomas. But before we do, I have a specific question for you to reflect on and share your thoughts in our community. More on that later. But for now, let's get to the show. Let's talk about financial empathy, because as I mentioned, I feel like that is an important piece of your book. And like I mentioned, I think it's also important to recognize that we need to have be empathetic with ourselves as well. Yes. But tell us, what do you mean by, I've already talked a little bit about financial empathy, but what is it? What? How would you define financial empathy and why should we practice it? And you've touched up on it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things. So I did the TED Talk in 2016 on financial empathy. So you can definitely go find that on YouTube for financial financial empathy, understanding the story beneath the numbers. Uh, the way that I define it is financial empathy is understanding one's capacity to understand, feel, and respond compassionately to the context of someone's financial circumstances, basically, right? And so the reason why I included the understand feel and compassion is because when we look at the much broader narrative of empathy, and there's a lot of research, especially in the medical side of it and health services, tons of research in this space. But I I wanted to explicitly say financial empathy because I felt that we were navigating a space during that time where there was a lot of guilting and financial shaming that was happening, right? And so because we, we felt it was acceptable to engage in pro-social shaming to encourage positive behaviors. Now, there are instances where pro-social shaming, if done correctly, could have some benefit. But that's what I consider to be the compassionate side of empathy, right? Because when people engage in the shaming element, oftentimes, they're not doing it with good intentions. They're doing it because they've labeled you and they want to remind you of your label. And if you already feel shame, you feel as if you are the mistake, I am the label, as opposed to I made a mistake, which is guilt, then if somebody's constantly reminded you of who you once were, even though you're trying to be better and different, then you're bounded by the label. And even for self, like I can label myself a certain thing and not have grace for myself at all. I actually have more grace for my neighbor, for a stranger that I ran into at you know the local grocery store, whatever it may be, than I do in great than I do with self. And that's because of the label that we have of self. So empathy or financial empathy is this process of engaging in understanding. Like you started with this, what's my story, right? And in under and in understanding our story, being able to see it separate from self, 
not tethered to self, externalizing story in a healthy way. Then unpacking how I felt. How did that make me feel? What were the circumstances and situations? And then having from there a healthy relationship with this idea of bounded rationality that comes from Herbert Simon. Am I still bound by those circumstances? Because what I find is that, and we know this in therapy, generally speaking, is that we all have this inner child. We all have this inner voice. And that inner voice oftentimes is rooted from something from the past. And in that past, that past version of self, I may have been bounded by time, information, resources, connections, like going down the list, right? But the person that I am today, am I still bounded by time? Am I still bounded by resources? Am I still bounded by information? Am I still bounded by social capital and relationships? Or someone or something that can help me move forward in my journey? Because what we do is we take the boundedness of the past, very similar to what we talked about earlier, and we make it seem very, very real and present today without recognizing that that thing is not big as it once was, not because it got smaller, because we have grown. And that whole area of being able to engage in compassion with self is to be able to recognize self and to see self, to be able to say that I have grown. I'm not the same person that I was, right? And given the same context and circumstance situations, I would respond differently. And in that, we can externalize and differentiate past self from current self so that past self doesn't weigh us down too heavily as we continue to evolve. And so in this compassion element of financial empathy, I think it's so incredibly important, which is why I love your platform, because you create a space for community. Because it can be very difficult to see self different from past self if you're navigating systems where people only know you from past self. So oftentimes, it can, we can get stuck in the emotional side of empathy because we get stuck in that, that mindset, that wiring of brain, or the way that we've uh, adapted to the way that we feel when we feel a certain way, which kind of goes back to what we once did and how we used to address the situation. And it's so incredibly powerful to engage in self-compassion by connecting to a community that sees you for who you are and where you're going. Because again, the way that we're wired as human beings, the reason why we do podcasts, right? The reason why we invite people to shows and things of that nature is because this stuff works so much better in community and having different paradigms, thought process, things of that nature. So to be able to get to that opposite end, I think it's incredibly important to do an audit of relationships, uh, to understand who's in your circle and what value do they add in terms of where you aspire and you're trying to go now and the person that you're trying to be. And in assessing who are the people who promote that sense of well-being and self-worth and people who don't, because where a lot of people get this wrong oftentimes is that they try to do it in isolation. And at the very fundamental core of who we are, we still want approval and affirmation from the tribe and the community. We want to be seen. We just don't want to grow and evolve and be the new person. We also want to be seen and respected and received as the new person. So I think it's twofold for an individual when they're navigating this space of engaging empathetically with self and then learning how to be compassionate with self is to work on self-work, identifying that I am no longer who I am and going through that bounded process. And all you have to do is find one yes, right? Like, or even one no. Am I still bounded to this? No, I'm not. 
How am I not bounded to this? Well, I have this and I have this and I have this. And then it starts to change the way that we think and we're starting to create new neural circuitry. And if we continue to do that over and over and over again and focus on the instances where we can take a step forward, we're actually engaging a proactive process of rewiring our brains, which ultimately leads to different forms of self-talk, internal self-talk, which then undergirds our compassionate, empathetic growth. So if I start to feel emotion about something, I'm able to say, it's okay to feel how I feel because that's how I once felt in that situation. But I'm no longer in that situation. So we don't get overwhelmed by what this process looks like. And then also having a community to help nudge you, celebrate you, and support you along the way. And to engage in this compassionate growth is so incredibly powerful, dynamic, and navigating the full spectrum of what this process looks like. And Jen, I could go through all the literature and data and all this stuff. I'm not. But I want to talk about this in systems because oftentimes we just try to do things in isolation. But we're not designed for isolation. We're actually designed for community. But we then also have choice in terms of how we connect. So if you're listening to this right now and you are not connected with the, the community that Jen is really trying to build both on a podcast and in creating space for people to engage, I want to encourage you, like, tap in. This is a part of the journey. You weren't designed just to do this by yourself. Thank you. And how does financial empathy, how does that fit into the broader picture of healing from financial trauma? Because one, it gives you the space to make mistakes and not be bounded by it. That, that fundamentally, that's a, that's a core paradigm of, of empathy. It's understanding that it's having contextual understanding of why I made the mistake. It isn't because I'm bad with something let me assess let me assess did i make the mistake because i had limited time <laughs> did i make the mistake because i'm overwhelmed did i make the mistake because i actually lack agency and power in this situation did i make the mistake because somebody actually didn't do what they were supposed to do and now i feel like i'm stuck in the middle of something and i'm having to kind of navigate very complex dynamics that Maybe I shouldn't have to be forced to face, but I'm dealing with it. And I feel like I'm solely responsible for appeasing everyone's need. What's the context to the mistake? And if we actually step back empathetically and not just put it on us and just say, I'm, I'm horrible at time management. I'm horrible at sticking to my goals. I'm horrible with money. I'm horrible with weight loss. Let's, think, let's talk about weight loss. If I struggle with overeating, Am I struggling with overeating because there's something wrong with me? Or am I struggling with overeating because the food that I'm consuming has been designed to be craveable? That's what they use. We should be saying addictive. It's not because you're just wanting to eat all the time. It's because literally the food that you're consuming has been designed to be addictive. And then what happens is, it's because we don't have context and we don't understand if the information side of this and how it's impacting us is hard to be empathetic with self because we either engage in guilt or shame and then cortisol triggers up and then we have stress and then how do we manage our stress? We eat. And then we start to eat the foods that create the addictive cycle and we just spiral out of control, right? So then, oh, there's something wrong with me. And then when we see messages on social media and this or that and the other, and people are like, why can't you get it right? But we don't say anything about the food industry. So we create systems of shame that place the onus solely on people as if the systems that we navigate 
don't also have implications on the way that people engage. If there wasn't a McDonald's, if there wasn't a Chick-fil-A, if there wasn't a Burger King, a pizza joint, a fast, on every corner, do you think we would eat out as much? Probably not. There's systems. And one of the things that I say here, so this is why the financial empathy piece matters. Let's say that you have someone who's navigated a situation where they didn't get their high school diploma for various reasons that are, that are household related. I could have easily had fallen into that as well. Um, as relates to feeling the need to have to help out family, we need financial resources, mom needs help, family needs help, I'd rather just stop and go ahead and start working. At the grocery store that I was working at, they didn't even want me to go to college. They was like, you know what, don't go to college. We'll give you a 401k, we'll do this, because I was, the, I was literally their milk manager in high school. And they were like, we don't wanna see you go, we don't wanna see you leave. However, my cap or ceiling would have been limited with that particular grocery store. Right? But if I'm navigating this process and I make these decisions in the moment that seem optimal at the time without having foresight on what the implications may be on my future, and then I get to my future self, well, I've lost a lot of time. I've lost the opportunity to develop social capital and networks in places that could create opportunities, open doors. I'm in Gary, Indiana. I may not have access. Like Jen, if I was still in Gary right now working at that, we're not having this conversation. If I made that decision or choice, and then let's say I want something better for myself, but then now let's say I've gotten married, I have a child or two, now I'm limited in resources, I want to go to college, college is incredibly expensive, and now I have to spread this out over eight years. So I'm already, let's say, mid-late 20s, I'm spreading college out now over eight years just to finish, depending on what type of student loan that I have, whether it's uh, subsidized or unsubsidized. Maybe the clock starting to tick in terms of the accruement of interest on that. Now, once I've done, I'm 35, maybe 36, trying to enter into a new career. I literally have 24 to 25 years of work life expectancy at entry level, but now I'm spending the next five or 10 years trying to pay back student loans, try to take care of family. Oh, and guess what? My children are about to get ready to graduate. They need a car. They need to pay for college. They need help with X, Y, and Z. And now I have people telling me I'm 45, getting close to 50. It's like, well, why don't you have anything saved for retirement? How else am I supposed to, like, you can't put me in the same bucket. But what happens is we place all that on the individual and we say that you should have made better decisions. You don't know my story. You don't know what I had to navigate. And I would add it's personal and relational because the decisions that we make, we make those in relationship. And we, we try to simplify people's lived experiences. Most people are really trying to do the best that they can with what they know and what they have, right? When people are in bad, when people are in debt, when you're in community, especially communities that we come from, if it's one person's problem, it's everybody's problem. So we don't even unpack that sometimes this credit card debt that's being built up is because there's somebody in family who has credit who's trying to help people within our family stay afloat, especially as we're navigating the pandemic. We never talk about this stuff. And I think that anybody in their right mind would say that, you know, it may not be optimal, but it's, it's damn honorable for someone to do what they can for the best of their family to make sure that everybody's okay or good. But we only want to have conversations around when people aren't doing the right things with money. But how about, let's focus on the thousands of families that are trying to do the very best and not feeling like they're getting ahead. The thousands of people, millions of people probably, that are working three or four jobs just to make ends meet. They work just as much as a CEO.
But the paradigm would be poor people do this, rich people do this. Ah, uh, when you come from where I come from, the steel mills, steel industry towns, the people are working doubles, they're sleeping, and they're just going right back to the steel mills. It's bad for their health. Like there's all these environmental impacts, and they're doing everything that they possibly can to try to get ahead and have some type of a life without being a slave to the mills. But we we never talk about it. Right. And then, I'm sorry, I'm getting no, passionate. You're Jay. good. No, I love it. I love it. And before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. Ready to transform your financial life with ease and confidence? Discover the Her Dinero Matters Money Planner, your ultimate digital tool for simplifying money management with its unique blend of psychological insights and practical budgeting tools. This planner is not just about tracking expenses, but about rewriting your money story. Whether you're aiming for big financial goals or everyday financial wellness, this planner is your personalized guide to simplify your money management and elevate your confidence. Download your copy today by visiting jenhemphill.com forward slash planner for more details and even get a sneak peek inside. Use the code Reina at checkout for 10% off. And on, add on top of that, the world of how much social media is takes a part of our life. And so then the different messages, then you start feeling I've, I've seen it with people that I've talked to, like, oh, my goodness, I'm behind, you know, based on that social media message that they saw. But that person, it does not have those intricacies that you have. It's completely different. So we it's cannot compare. We Context cannot compare. matters. Yeah, I've seen, and speaking of, like, shaming and how you mentioned how that happens, I've seen a lot, and the world has evolved, and, and especially in a certain... Um, <laughs> Uh, personal finance experts community where they shame people who have these high car notes. Now I'm like, have you tried to buy and, and there's not, you know, have you tried to buy a car <laughs> in this day and age of how much it is? And if you're not in a great financial position, that might be the only chance. It, it may be the, the best the op option. Yeah. So there's so many you. things and we can, oh my gosh, there's yeah. so much we, more. Can, we could can I say into. one thing to that? Sure. Absolutely. The people, then some people say, oh, well, you could just Uber. Well, think about, think about how often some people drive to and from work, go pick up something from school, from, from the store, go to the grocery store. Let's say that then also too, let's say you don't have a washer or dryer. So you have to go. So think, think about, Think about how it looks for someone to have multiple bags, big bags of laundry, Ubering every weekend just to stay on top of the laundry. And that's a whole day affair. And then let's say my kid has to, we got daycare, got to drop them off. And if they want to play sports, things, we have to, like anything that we think is customary, if you have a car and you can just, oh yeah, the game's 30 miles away. Yeah, we'll be there. We'll be there. We'll be at the game. For some people, that is not mm -mm. an option. Right. At all, because they don't have good transit. And then the cost of that adds up. So if I'm already paying $300, $400, $500 dollars a month just trying to get around my community, does it really matter? Yeah, <laughs> oh, plus yeah, right. we have to have an appreciation, especially in the U.S., just being that I was born in Colombia and, and knowing how 
in Latin America, or I'm sure in other countries, the system's so different in terms of like, not nowadays, but when I was little, you had to go in person to go pay the bill. So it could be a whole day affair just to pay the bill. So that means that you might have to take off work. That's one day of lost income. There's so many intricacies. So I mean, in the US that it's, you know, we've got a good even though there's still a lot, <laughs> a lot of things. There's a complexity. There's a, there's a privilege Mm-hmm. to being a U.S. citizen. There is, for uh, sure. And, and, and again, I'm a person of faith. And so even just the whole notion of being able to publicly go to church, right? Like we had Easter Sunday, right? We had Ramadan, we had Passover, we had all these things that are happening at once. Do so you know that in some countries, you can't publicly manifest, you can't publicly show faith, right? Like, the, like to your point, like you have to get outside of bubbles. <laughs> For to sure. really understand and to appreciate some of the beautiful things that are being done in Colombia, where you can say that, you know what, it would be amazing if we could have that here, right? And then you have other things. And again, there's there's this process of being able to cross-pollinate on ideas, uh, but it's very difficult to do that if we're, if we're navigating a space of shame, because shame causes people to hide. Yeah, absolutely. Empathy encourages people to rise. Love that. Because it gives you this, it gives you the space to grow. Shame limits you. And if you're limited, guess what? I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be known. I don't want to be visible. Right. And then how do you get help? You don't get help and things exacerbate. And then usually, and you know this, Jen, usually if people were to come and seek our services, it's when the burden and pain of the thing is now stronger than the shame of the thing. And that can take a long time. But what would happen if we engaged in financial empathy, if that we engaged in compassion of other and self-compassion? In my opinion, it means it closes the time frame. People seek help sooner. They trust community. They understand that community sees them for where they're going and appreciates them for coming in, is not there to browbeat them and what they've done wrong or whatever it may be. And then now we create an element where it's like, oh, I feel good, dopamine, right? right? Feeling serotonin, I feel calm. I'm in a relaxed state. Now I'm rewiring my brain for engagement with the financial services industry. I have great experiences. I feel seen, loved on, cared for, and we address my need. Now what do I do with my family dynamic? I say, hey, this is what I learned. This is what we did. Who do you go to? And we start to change systems inwardly, outwardly. Uh, And I really think that that notion of empathy ending with compassion because a lot of research just starts at empathy meaning that i'm sharing in the emotional feeling that you have i'm not overwhelmed by it though but i can share in the emotion compassion is how do i not just share in it but what do i do for your benefit that helps absolve your emotional state not mine right and there's there's a very distinct difference there because when we respond compassionately, and I'll, and I'll end on this. Have you ever gone to a dentist? I think some of us have, right? And so if you have, then you would know that if you have to get a tooth pulled or if you have to have something done, the needle is pretty long that they have to inject in your mouth in order to numb the area. If you've ever gone to a dentist, did the dentist ever show you the needle first? They do. They do. So for me, this is the thing. Jen, for me, the dentist never showed me the needle. They actually sit to the side, they kind of hide it a little bit, and they say open wide, and then they come through and then they inject into your mouth. So what I'm getting at here is that at a certain point, what they found was, you know, maybe 
people are freaking out in this chair <laughs> because they don't want me to inject it with this big needle. But this is something that they need because I need to be able to serve them. I need to be able to care for them. What I'm not going to say is get over it. Open your mouth. Stop complaining. Stop whining because we can't do this if you don't stop X, Y, and Z. Because that person is experiencing a very real emotional response. Compassion is, all right, I can understand why this, feel, this person is feeling the way that they're feeling. And in fact, I would feel the same way too. Compassion is, how can I do this differently for the benefit of someone else and not what is convenient or expedient for me? And that's where a lot of people get stuck on, oh, I feel you. I care about you. Emotionally, I understand where you're coming from, but we can't stop there. Now it's, are you invested in seeing me be better? And that's where, so when I talk about financial empathy, it's not just about understanding. It's not just about feeling. It, then we have to complete the circle. We have to then say, how do we respond compassionately based on the needs and context of the life of someone else? Because my strategy in the middle class may not be optimal for someone who is um, navigating poverty. I can't take middle class values and say, oh, just do all these middle class things and you're going to be fine. No, I have to understand where you are and we have to think about, all right, how do we gradually build from there? Then we get stability. Then we build a little bit more. We get more stability. Then we start thinking about maybe some of these middle class sensibilities that are things that now you're going to have exposure to this. What do you do when this happens? But someone can't think about a 401k if they're trying to figure out from week to week, how am I making ends meet juggling three jobs? Right. It's just it's you can't you have to consider that and respond compassionately within that paradigm. Right. You are just full of knowledge, full of gems. So I really, really appreciate. And I want to just ask oh, one more question. If you could just briefly told us you uh, took this time to write this phenomenal book that has a lot in there. And I do and, appreciate you, Jen. Oh, no, no. I appreciate you. I'm wondering, did something as you wrote the book, did you have like an aha moment? Because you said this this is book has been in the making, I believe, since 2017. But as you wrote the book, did you were you surprised at some point in time or did you have an aha moment of something that maybe you realized as you were writing the book? You know what, Jen? Honestly, the the further and further I got into this book and I chose to really embrace the raw emotions of things that were very, very real to me and some things that I still struggle with. I started to feel some fear because like I'm, I started to realize how vulnerable I was actually being. And it's not always safe to be vulnerable, honestly. I've been, I've been finished with this book since about January and I really struggled with releasing it, honestly, because of the level of vulnerability, because I'm being very authentic and very unique to my experience because I feel as if we can't really grow unless we're willing to to really look at the wounds that are there and not just throw a rug over or bandage over it and just hope that it heals. And so for me, the further and further I got into it, I was experiencing some anxiety, honestly, because like, man, this is vulnerable, man. I went there. I had my mom read it and I said, Hey, are you okay with this? <laughs> I was like, are you okay with this? And I kind of wanted her to say, no, I'm not. So I can just discard the project. I'm being very honest with you. And you know where I'm going with this. We're so polarized in conversations that we have and and the polarization has been monetized too which perpetuates polarization you just never know how things are going to land or how people are going to receive things and how people want to see it through their lens and not engage in a journey with you 
and really do this to really understand something. So I struggled with that. But at a certain point, I said, if I don't do this, I'm never going to do this. And I'm tired of playing small. So if we bring things full circle here, one of the things that was my adaptive response to growing up in Gary was being out of sight, out of mind, not ruffling feathers, not speaking up, just saying that, hey, I'm not going to create any problems or issues. I'll just be quiet, right? Everything from there is going to work itself out. People aren't going to bother you. You don't have to worry about life stuff and all these different things. And what I've realized over the years is that even if you're a person of faith, even if you're quiet, even if you give and donate, even if you try to do everything right, financially and otherwise, life is still going to happen, whether you use your voice or you don't. And I said, like, at this phase of my life, I'm going to stop playing small. I'm going to step up. I am perfectly okay with now, more so than I've ever been, because I think that I've produced something that is fundamentally honest. There's integrity. It's truthful. I wrote it. Like, this isn't a chat GPT book. I've been working on this for two years. There's everything about this is integrity, 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 integrity. And if people don't appreciate my integrity and then understand that I'm not trying to be the dominant voice in a room, I don't care about that. What I want is to provide a voice in a room that helps to move the conversation along to the work that you're doing, to the work that so many others are doing. No one person owns this space. I certainly don't. But we're doing this because we really want to see an impact. We want to say that, Jim, by the time that like, we're 90 and 92 years old, we want to be able to say, yes, we're not dealing with the same problems that we were dealing with when we were navigating this journey. We've helped move the needle slightly and advance us down the field a little bit further than where we were before. That's what this is all about. So if, if people don't get that and they don't understand that, well, that, that's on them. I can't. I've, I've done something that I think that I appreciate, I love, and I've had to, I've had to engage in self-compassion for myself in terms of how do I feel about this work? Do I feel like I did the best that I could do with the time that I had, the resources that I had, things of that nature? Absolutely. Are there things that can be better? Absolutely. But I take those lessons and I say, hey, I'm going to use this for the next project, right? So uh, that was, so big picture that was kind of like the whole thing. So I'm glad that I did. I'm, it made me feel really, really good when I got that message from you. Because <laughs> you're like, Mike, I'll read this. Man, this is this is okay. I was like, all right, Jen is good with it. Because I'm the, um, I'm the, the voice that says if I'm okay, it's, it's going to yeah, be okay. Right? No, <laughs> you, no but, this is, but you want your tribe. You want your tribe to say that, hey, you, you might not agree with every point. That's okay. But you say, I still appreciate that you did this work. Because nothing is going to be perfect. And I so appreciate that, Jen. So thank you. No, well, thank you. I appreciate for the vulnerability that you do show in the book and the book that you have, you know, wrote. I really strongly feel that it will move the noodle. Ne the noodle. And that too, I guess. The <laughs> needles needle. need to be moved. <laughs> the needle. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for just sharing everything, all the goodness that you shared with us today and for being here and for the person that you are because we need you. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that, Jen. And as we need you. So thank you for everything that you're doing. 
Wow, what a powerful two-part episode. We discussed the importance of breaking the cycles of our past generations in order to have a healthy relationship with money. We also learned that by using financial empathy, we gain a different perspective. There was also a part where Michael shares that regardless of your culture, you may inherit traumas that don't belong to you. So we need to be aware of this. Definitely check out Michael's book, Black Financial Culture. If you love this two-part series with Michael Thomas, make sure to check out his book, Black Financial Culture. You can find it over at blackfinancialculture.com and we will also have a link in today's show notes. Now, what do you think describes Latino financial culture? I'm going to share my thoughts in our private community. And of course, I want to hear your thoughts as well. You can join us at jenhemphill.com forward slash community and we will share that link in today's show notes. Next week, it's going to be a solo episode, just you and I, and we are going to discuss living on one income. Is it possible or even realistic to go from a two-income family to one? Or what happens if one income is all you have, all your options? I'm going to share my story of what we did and more. Buena Pues, that is everything. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune in to the show. Check out the show notes over at jenhemphill.com forward slash 358. That is jenhemphill.com forward slash 358. Remember that being the reina of your money starts now simply by claiming it. I believe in you and so should you. Nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. Chao. 